I kind of look at that stuff as like that slightly next level storytelling when you know that not only is the director giving you the story and giving it to you well, but they are playing with motifs and recurring images and themes and stuff like that. That's all operating on like the next level. And that's true mm. in storytelling in general. Like I think authors, really good authors do that as well. Um, so it's always cool to see directors doing something like that. I totally agree. Yeah, the spider represents for sure that, that idea of a predator. And, and rather than being a, like a wolf that actively attacks its prey, it springs a trap. It traps, yeah. And then it, it while you're vulnerable. And it paralyzes you. Yeah, while you're vulnerable, it takes you down. Yeah. Welcome, friends, to episode 247 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss episodes two through four of Guillermo del Toro's 2022 series, Cabinet of Curiosities. So we got to watch some spooky stuff for Halloween. I don't know about you, but I watched mostly on Halloween night itself. Yeah. Uh, last night was Halloween uh, as, as of recording this. And yeah, I watched two of the three episodes last night. I watched another one this morning. Uh, it, it was very appropriate. Yeah, I, I had a great time with it. And I'm eager to see what some of these other episodes are like. And, and even beyond the ones we're covering uh, for the main feed, I'm curious to see what these other ones are like that we're going to cover on Patreon. And that's like episodes one, seven and eight, I think. So I'll be curious to see what those are like, the uh, non-adaptations. Yeah. I also watched mostly on Halloween. I watched two two episodes and and had some trick-or-treaters stopping by and that kind of thing all oh, cool. at the same time. And so, you know, it was just it was a fun night and really well produced show, I think. You know, I love the having Del Toro come out and introduce these episodes and kind of such a throwback feel. I, I yeah. love it. Yeah, it's, it's so it's good. Cool. I read somewhere that it's um an homage to Hitchcock. But I would also argue like Hitchcock with Alfred Hitchcock Hour, the sort of suspense thriller kind of thing. I'm not familiar. I haven't ever seen it. But But Hitchcock is known for his like thrillers and suspense. So I guess, you know, you can see Del Toro loving something like that. But also I would definitely argue Rod Serling with Twilight Zone because I think that's around the same time. And the way he comes out to introduce his episodes. There's a lot of shows I remember growing up like, I mean, I guess some of them were more like true crime like unsolved mysteries but like just the idea of having a host come out and like say a little something talk about and it feels like he always kind of thematically sets up the thing you're about to watch and like yeah, hints at some sort of like message that might be behind it plus the cabinet is awesome it's so cool it's very cool and then i like how you basically get like a an icon to uh evoke the director it seems because he mentions the director by name and then there's also some sort of item it seems like there's always some sort of other thing he sets that comes out of the cabinet yeah he takes it out of the cabinet he sets him on this little like pedestal or something and then it zooms in on him and we get the title card too like the title of the episode and and to be honest like this the idea of having something called guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities you might think that he's completely created everything but for him i love this I love this man so much, first of all, but just in general to have him, you know, create a show and then to shout out the artist in such a major way and be like, this is who made this. And, you know, you'll you will enjoy it. And he had some hand in helping curate it, I'm sure. But I thought that was so cool. And the little figure of each of the each of the directors like that's awesome. What a cool touch that is. Yeah, I like that the the authors at least get like an early name card uh, in the episode, too. Um, even though the director is sort of getting all the credit, um, sometimes maybe more deserved than others. But um, as far as like how much they had to change versus like sums that are very 
faithful. Um, but regardless, like I'm, he's a director. He's shouting out directors. I get it. And and you know, honestly, something I'm having a lot of fun with. And it just backs up my point from last week, where I was saying I I hope that this is something that continues, and he can start bringing in more modern authors. We get we we do have a little bit, but like. I want more modern authors and him to continuing to do this. So I really hope it's popular and that we, we're going to get another season of this. Um, yeah. So everybody should be watching this thing. <laughs> I agree. It's, it's a lot of fun. And especially as a horror fan, if you like this kind of stuff, it's, it's, it's geared directly towards horror fans. Like now in the, like a lot of these anthology series, it's a little uneven and there might be some episodes that you didn't really like, and there might be others you really love. And, um, I think that's okay, right? Like you, it's all part of it. That's yeah. like the Twilight Zone is the same thing, right? Like nobody watched every episode of the Twilight Zone was like they're all amazing. Everybody has favorites. Everybody has sometimes that they really stand out. So I think it's going to be like that. And um, ev- there's something there for everybody. And maybe the one that you didn't like that much is someone else's favorite. Yeah. So that's always that's always cool. Yeah, I love it. Um, so let's just let's talk general thoughts real quick before we get into that. I just do want to say. Um, because I think this is our last episode before Election Day. Election Day is November 8th. Please go out and vote. And uh, I really think that American democracy is on the line. Uh, it's it's a major election. Uh, don't sit this one out. You know, uh, I think sometimes people are intimidated by the number of things that are on these ballots. You can do research when when you're there. But, like, even if even if you don't know what everything is, you can leave some stuff blank. They'll still count your vote and, and vote for the things that you do know. Um, because I, I do think this is a really important one. So anyway, hopefully you all got and vote. I know all our listeners are savvy with that stuff, or I like to think. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And if you're young, if you're like 18, we need you. <laughs> Please <Seriously>. vote. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so, but yeah, I mean, this this show, um, I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's, at times it can lean, it like, because of its setup, it can lean into being like really campy and just like, this is a horror show. This is a, this is going to be over the top. And um, especially like our first episode, we're going to get into with graveyard rats. I thought really fit the bill there where it was just over the top monster, like just, just in your face, campy horror. Um, But it was cool. And I watched that. That was the first one I watched and it was, you know, Halloween night. So I was like, this is perfect. I I agree. The campiness is not lost on me. It's this, this does feel like the kind of thing where, like you said, not every episode is going to be for everyone. And it's, and, and I would, I would wager to say that if you're a big horror fan, you're you have you'll give it more leniency. But I think there I could see some people kind of turning on the, the Graveyard Rats episode, for example, and just kind of it not being for them and them thinking maybe this is glad that that's not the first episode. And I haven't seen the first episode yet. Right. But yeah. I didn't for that to be either. the first one. I feel like it might give you an uneven idea of what the show could be about because there's a lot of variety to these stories. But overall, I enjoyed it. And and each one had me excited to watch the next because they were so individual. They were such individual stories and they were taking me on a journey. And, and, and I like that they vary in length. So that makes me feel like if somebody's vision is something shorter, they don't have to stick to a certain timetable. Like I think Graveyard to Us was like 40 minutes. Yeah. And then the longer was uh, The Outside, which was like an hour 10, I believe, or somewhere yeah. in that range. That that's one of the benefits of streaming, right? Like I think we I've seen some shows start to realize like, hey, we don't have to be so strict about our our time. You know, we can go a little long, we can go a little short. Even in like premium, you know, uh, cable shows, like you'll see HBO episodes sometimes will go over by 15, 20 minutes. So 
there's like a loosening of the strictness in that, which I think is good because you you allow the episode to be as long as it needs to be. Yeah, overall, uh, recommend it, especially to horror fans. Yeah, I mean, we've only seen three episodes, but like of the three, you know, we're going to talk about them each. And, uh, you know, I had fun with all three. I think that's safe to say I have my favorite and I have my, you know, it, it, so we'll talk about it. But like everybody should check them out, especially if you're a horror fan. Absolutely. Um, this also is- flick through, flick through, and see if which which descriptions stand out to you because you don't have to watch them in order to check out which ones you think sound cool, and then maybe it'll suck you in. Yeah, they all stand alone. It's like it's like standalone horror short films is what it feels like to me. Yeah. So talking about Gal- Del Toro a bit, I just want to highlight him and and if people aren't familiar who he is and, and his impact on on horror and just film in general. Guillermo del Toro Gomez is a Mexican filmmaker, actor, and author. He directed the Academy Award-winning fantasy films Pan's Labyrinth in 2006 and The Shape of Water in 2017. Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favorite like fantasy movies of all time. Absolutely love that movie. Amazing. One of my favorite movies, for sure. Yeah. I think it, it makes the list, no question. Winning the Academy Awards for Best Director and Best Picture for the latter, so for The Shape of Water in 2017. Um, which I also recommend everybody checks that out. I just, I, I love the way that he loves horror and monsters and these things. It, I think this this summary does a good job of kind of encapsulating him as a person. Throughout his career, Del Toro has shifted between personal, lower budget Spanish language films such as Kronos and The Devil's Backbone and Hollywood tentpoles including Blade 2, Hellboy, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, Nightmare Alley, and his upcoming stop motion film, Pinocchio. As a producer or writer, he worked on the films The Orphanage, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, The Hobbit film series, Mama, The Book of Life, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and The Witches. Yeah, some projects we've covered in there, some things we've touched on, some things I think we might cover in the future. Uh, That's a cool collection of stuff, for sure. With Chuck Hogan, he also co-authored the Strain trilogy of novels from 2009 to 2011, later adapted into a comic book series and a live-action television series. Yeah, I remember watching some of that series, and I I fell off of it, but um, it was pretty good. It just didn't quite keep me I, same i watched the first episode and i remember liking it i like the premise and and i don't remember why i fell off of it but maybe i should i watched a few i remember watching a few but it just like yeah didn't build enough i think but yeah it's been a long time so i couldn't tell you but author as well right so co-authored yeah. that and you know that's exciting to see and i think that that is clear in a lot of his he's very clearly a writer director right like he has mm-hmm. a strong control of a lot of the things he's creating and a good handle on them Del Toro's work has been characterized by a strong connection to fairy tales and horror with an effect to infuse visual and poetic beauty in the grotesque. He has had a lifelong fascination with monsters, which he considers symbols of great power. He is also known for his use of insectile and religious imagery, the themes of Catholicism and celebrating imperfection, underworld and clock motifs, practical special effects, dominant amber lighting, and his frequent collaborations with actors Ron Perlman and Doug Jones. Del Toro is close friends with fellow Mexican filmmakers Alfonso Coron and Alejandro Inarritu, and they are collectively known as the Three Amigos of Cinema. He was included in Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2018, and he received a motion picture star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2019. Yeah, I, you know, I know this isn't his, like, he's not directing these episodes, but, uh, you know, being being the sort of creative force behind it all, um, you know, I think you can see there is a unification uh, for everything. And I imagine he was at least somewhat involved in each of these and giving notes and, and maybe like there's some visual connective connectiveness, I think, through all of it. Um, so it's it's cool. You know, I, I do think we're going to return to him in the future and talk about him more when he's actually the director of the thing. Um, but, yeah, I think it's good to note 
note him before we get started? Especially because, you know, this is his cabinet of curiosities, right? If people right. are checking in and they're like, why is this person being selected to, to curate these horror stories? And that's really why. He is this like horror icon, herald of of film and and he's he's like an encyclopedia his home is a museum like he's just one of the coolest people out there working in film yeah it's really neat to see him create this this show as a as a celebration of that is awesome okay so we're going to get into some summaries here for these episodes the first episode that we will be covering is the graveyard rats but as we did last week we're going to give ourselves a timer because we feel it kind of makes a game out of it and yeah forces us to kind of be concise so keeps us on schedule we're gonna uh go for about 18 minutes for each of these three stories yeah first one's going to be the graveyard rats i'm going to start my timer now Masson is a grave robber in desperate need of funds. His attempts have been thwarted by rats who terrify him and who rapidly swarm and remove any valuable possessions held by recently buried corpses. When his financial situation becomes dire, he learns of a recently buried aristocrat and seeks to unearth him and his valuables, but finds the rats have already dug an enormous hole and dragged the corpse underground. Crawling after them, he encounters an enormous mother rat who chases him through their network of tunnels. He falls into a hole and lands in a subterranean temple dedicated to a tentacled eldritch god. He steals a talisman from a corpse, which animates and chases after him, demanding its return. Crawling back through the tunnels, he manages to cause a cave-in that kills the mother rat and stops the corpse. Climbing toward a light above, he finds to his horror that it is merely the glint of a coffin's lid plaque. Trapped inside and buried alive, he is swarmed by rats. Later, grave robbers unearth his corpse from which emerge numerous rats. Yeah. So uh, we said that this was the most straightforward of the stories. It's just like a, you know, horror tale about this grave robber who kind of gets what's coming to him a little bit. And honestly, that's what they did with this episode. I mean, they added some more texture. They added a little more to the story. I think they really highlighted the greed in the character and also the like the lies he's sort of telling to himself as he as he keeps like giving such lip service to being a good person and like lip service to being pious and yet everything his actions all undercut that and like go against his him. true nature comes out when yeah. push comes to shove like he he acts like he's gonna do this he even says like as he's crawling out of the tunnel at the end he's like lord if, if you get me out of this i promise i'll change my ways or whatever and then like you we've seen this character over and over you know what he's gonna do he's and his true nature so uh, I do want to highlight the the director of each episode. So this episode was was directed by Vincenzo Natali. Natali is an American-born Canadian film director and screenwriter known for writing and directing science fiction and horror films such as Cube, Cipher, Nothing, and Splice. Okay, I've heard of some of those. I don't know that I've seen any of them, but I've heard of them. Splice is super weird. It's like this alien creature or whatever with a tail. Yeah. And then I think it like seduces a person and they yeah. make like a weird hybrid baby. I think I've seen like clips of that movie. But I've never actually watched it, yeah. Wild movie. So he had his directorial debut in 97 with Cube. I've heard that movie's good. I, I haven't seen it. I actually haven't seen this film either, so I don't I don't know what it's about. But it did especially well in Japan and France. And it received five nominations at the Genie Awards and won an award for the Best Canadian Feature Film at the Toronto International Film Festival. So that's a big deal. Um, after the success, he went on to direct Cypher, Nothing, and Splice. And there's a couple things about this person's bio that I highlighted because I knew that you were going to think they were wildly interesting. Okay. So a May 2010 item in The Hollywood Reporter announced that Natalie was to replace Joseph Kahn as director of the highly anticipated adaptation of cyberpunk author William Gibson's 1984 novel Neuromancer. <laughs> okay. Which still has not, has not happened. So I assume something... <laughs> something must have happened, but... 
this person was attached at one point. Yeah, that's been the, like a weird white whale of an adaptation that just seems like it's never, I don't know. It kind of feels like a Dune, a potential Dune situation to me. Like, yeah, at some point maybe we'll get it and it'll, it'll be... be this massive film that, that some amazing filmmaker gets a hold of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he was attached to that. For, for some of his other background of what he's done, he's directed episodes of Hannibal. Uh, Ooh, he directed cool. an episode on Westworld. He directed an episode of American Gods. And then recently, I don't know if you've been seeing this, but Amazon's been pushing one of their new shows. It's called The Peripheral, also a William Gibson adaptation. Yeah. And uh, he actually directed the show's pilot and is an executive producer on there. That's awesome. Yeah, I've been kind of honestly wanting to check that out, but I've been holding off because I didn't know if it was something we'd want to cover or not, or if we could cover. I need to look into it some more, but... Uh, yeah, that's really cool. That's quite a pedigree. And, and honestly, I thought some of these directors were going to be like true up and comers who hadn't done anything. So like this isn't like this guy's got a pretty good list of things he's created. So yeah, I'm impressed. I I've, I was impressed by the while the story is simple and I would just right off the bat let you know that this is probably my least favorite of the three that we watched. Agreed. It's still really well made. Like I said, it's great, really well produced. I was yeah. I was sucked in the whole time. And honestly, when it comes to the to the grotesque and the nastiness and the scariness in terms of like claustrophobia and some of the other things that go on and the creature design. And I, I thought this episode was awesome. Like I really enjoyed seeing a lot of that. For being the weakest of the three, like it's it's quite strong, I think. Still, it's very campy. This is the one that I that like. I was immediately like, "Wow, yeah, we're really leaning into into this." Um, they're having fun with it, though, right? Like, we're getting we're getting these shots that I think show you how campy it's going to be. Like, there's this moment where Hassan, uh, or, or however you say his name, Hassan, um, he's in the morgue or whatever it is, and he's hiding. And then the woman comes in and she's talking to, about her husband. And then he hears about this saber and he looks up and like we see the shot <laughs> of his face through a vial and it's like all distorted. And he starts like licking his lips and it's he's like greenish, like 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 uh, really showing off the greed. And it's just, it's so over the top, but like it reminds me of like going into a haunted house or something, like something you might see. Like it's, it's just campy and they're leaning into it. They're having fun with it. The performances as well, right? They're big, broad performances that are like almost slapstick at times and almost like um, this fishmonger gangster guy is like yeah. so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, his his accent is so funny, and um, you know he's chopping fish and he's got all these hooks around and there's chains and it's just it's all just horror camp. It's working though. When the, the the episode opened and I saw two grave robbers, I was like, I was right. There's going to be two of them. Um, and then he like he actually shows up and runs them off. And I was like, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and sure enough, like they make it work with the, the one guy and he talks to himself some. He, um, you know, he has interactions with people throughout, but like they are able to make that solo experience work, which is, uh, I think, a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think it works and, and they did bring in other characters for him to play off of. So I was right about that. I just wasn't right about there being like a partner, which is what I thought they were going to do. And for, you have to have a really unhinged character for, and and have more of a broad performance for them to be like sort of frantically talking to themselves the whole time and that kind of, so like, like you said, it's a tough thing to pull off and I think it's a specific kind of tone. If it was a more serious thing and they were talking to themselves, you would feel like they were just monologuing or they were just, you know, giving us some sort of It works with the, the campy tone and like. They they set up this character who speaks in this like grant with these grandiose, um, you know, m- almost monologues like you were saying. He's like giving to people, yet his his true nature is not that at all. You know, as, as we continue to see, 
Um, so that, that, that dichotomy is really interesting within the character, like the, the, what he wants to display and pretend that he is versus what he really is. Yeah. And like his gesticulations and everything are so big and and like I said, broad getting into this morgue scene, he, Netflix is interesting because I never know what Netflix can do as far as nudity. Yeah. We got full male frontal nudity, which is pretty rare. We get some, uh, cadaver dicks. Cadaver wieners, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting. Like, there was a couple of funny visual gags where, like, he's going up to each one. He's trying to pull out these gold teeth. And then he goes up to one and it's like, we're still looking for the head. And yeah. I, and then he pulls back the lips on one and it's got wooden teeth. And, like, yeah. And the, how gross was, was some of this, right? Like, when he's, like, digging into the mouths. And- yeah. And, th- and that was that was something through all three episodes. Uh, they, they really lean into the, like, gory body horror um which i think is very appropriate for these three stories um but yeah it's really coming across i'm curious to see if every episode will have some of this because it does start to feel like one of the hallmarks of every episode was that there was just even more gory and gross than i was kind of expecting from the series they really leaned into it yeah and i remember even in the stories thinking wow these are these stories are really going they're dark and they're very gory and and like grotesque and nasty but like you said they really leaned into it here and i was like wow this is where i think i could also see people sort of checking out on this as much as they might be interested in the stories they might this might be a little much for them because it is it's excessive uh, deliberately and it's it's i think like a signal that like this is for horror fans like this the show will welcome you in if you're willing to to sort of admit and 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 own the fact that you're there for the horror like you're that's what you're there for and if you're okay with that then yeah let's 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 do it um but it's not going to be a show that is going to have that broad appeal to non-horror fans because there's a lot in here that's going to turn them off oh i do want to say about that that autopsy scene i think it sets up a sort of heist scenario that they introduced for this this episode that wasn't really present in the story and i thought that was clever right like you're giving the stakes of if I don't get this money, I'm going to possibly be killed. Uh, and now I have to pull off this theft and he goes down in there and the body gets pulled away, which is like that's from the story. But like the the stakes are so high that when he chases after the body into the tunnel, we understand why he's doing it. Right. Like he's got he, a motivation. He's yeah. got the motivation. So I felt like that all worked. And that was a clever uh, additional thing they brought into this story still feel like as he went into the tunnel i was like this is such a bad idea oh, of course <laughs> of course it's a terrible fucking idea <laughs> awful idea <laughs> but but you understand more why he would do it i think in this than you did even in the short story it's not it wasn't as wet as i was expecting yeah well and that's the thing like this story is so campy that even though like when he got in the tunnel i was like this is not what this would look like right like these these tunnels were yeah they were dry they were like big they were huge um and and um you know yeah he wasn't nearly as dirty as i would think he would be um there's just a lot about it. like it looked very over the top um but it works for this story like that's i think part of its charm and i think you know whether or not you like this episode will come down to whether or not you like that like you like that very obvious hand of the storyteller like going like waving at you saying I'm telling you a horror story like like you and you're just okay like you know what I mean like yeah okay I don't know if that makes sense but like I could I could feel the storytellers behind it 
and they're just like embracing the fact that they're telling a horror story to you. Yeah, they're like, you're going to go with this. Yeah, but also like, let's all have fun together with it. Like they're in on it, you're in on it, the actor's in on it. Everybody's having a good time. Let's see some cool monsters kind of thing, you know? And I would say that the outside has a little bit of this going on as well. When we get to that, we'll touch in on. on I think all of them do. Honestly, yeah. So he's getting swarmed by rats. There's this dream that he has, by the way, earlier where like a thousand rats. So if you're him, if you don't yeah. like rats, this one's gonna be a bummer. Well, I noticed that they also like did work to make sure the rats didn't look cute. <laughs> they like yeah. they're all like, cats are like the rats are like covered in like deformities and like their skins all mottled and because like cats are are I keep saying cats rats are are pretty cute honestly. Um, yeah, you know it's like yeah they can be gross at times depending on like what they've gotten in and like what they're doing but like. A lot of times they're they're just little furry animals. Yeah. And they really lean into the swarm too, right? Like a swarm of them because that's always unsettling. Just any amount, like when there's a huge amount of anything, it's like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, if they can like, and they can basically just cover him. Yeah. And- I mean, yeah, it's like, it's like when they, when they swarm, there are hundreds and hundreds. How do you feel about rats? They, is that one of your fears? I'm fine with that. I actually had my my dad uh, was involved in like some medical research f- facility that he was working at for a while. And he uh, we, he actually saved a couple albino rats and brought them home for us. So we had a couple. I think that's like, how those. Resident Evil starts. I'm just kidding. There you go. There you go. <laughs> he, he, I, I think it was less experimentation like, like uh, you know disease or anything like genetic or anything like that it was more testing other things i'm not really sure actually i don't know i don't know it was just a childhood memory that we had a couple and they were great one was named pockets because you would just sit in your pocket there you in go. like a in like a shirt pocket yeah and my story my story that's out in reckoning has a bunch of rats in it and and uh they're not scary unlike these rats <laughs> uh i will say mama rat that was a cool monster. How do we feel about the practical effects? Because I thought they looked great. You know, I, at times I could tell they they brought in some computer generated stuff. Like it wasn't, I think, I mean, it was probably a blend of both. Um, a lot of the movement and stuff, I feel like they had to. But like, yeah, overall, when when we first saw the rat and the mama rat and then like he turns around and she's right in his face and breathing and like dripping and the flesh is all pulled back and weird, and like the, the mouth is all articulating and moving, and yeah, the eyes look almost blind. Um, like you hear about, uh, uh, what are those? There are some rats that are blind. I forget what they are, but yeah, th- this is a thing, right? And like it, it just looks so cool. And um, yeah, I'm a sucker for that. It, I'm a sucker for really good practical monsters. It, it's awesome, and and like it doesn't have. It was actually very articulate in terms of like the way that it was moving and the dripping out of the mouth really yeah. sold it. And there's a lot that you can see that the actor is able to like get and perform with this giant creature. Right. Uh, and so yeah, I love that. And then eventually this leads us into him falling into this the black, black church, church or whatever he calls it. Yeah, and it's it's got this this uh, Lovecraftian style icon and god. And I feel like this is a, a, a kind of a unifying thing for some of these episodes is this like otherworldly power and force um, that we don't really understand. Um, and yeah, you know, he comes in and like he's he, at first he's scared, but then like he gets greedy and his greed overcomes his fear and he starts stealing stuff. And just, you know, when he goes to steal that amulet, it's bad news, man. Um, you can look at that thing and tell something's up with it. You're like, that doesn't look like all the other skeletons that are laying around here. In fact, its hands have nails on them still. And they're like in this like prayerful pose. But like he, this character is so over the top and like bad. I mean, they're bad in the sense of like he's a bad person um, that we're fine with it. And like, honestly, like the whole thing is like waiting for him to get 
get what's coming to him. Like we're kind of on the side of the of the evil shit in this episode. So I um felt like there was a turning point and I can't tell if it's because I didn't this this wasn't specifically from the novel, so it was like new something new for me, but I actually liked once he fell down into this and there's this weird Lovecraftian entity and there's like people clearly worshiping it or something and then there's this zombie thing and then the chase that ensues from the zombie thing coming alive and splitting in half, which was a cool effect. And, and like, get, he's like throwing half a body around and then, uh, he gets chased by the zombie up to the point where the rat is on the other side of him. So he's cornered and then he, he, you know, knocks down this, this rock. Yeah. I thought the moment was a little visually confusing as to like how he got out of the way of it, how it landed on the rat and not him. Like it was just a little, I got a little lost. Um, but, but I get it. It was a cool moment and, um, it wasn't really in the story because we hear about this figure, this possible corpse and he sees it like behind the rats, but that's as close as we ever really get to it. Um, and when we hear about these black churches and stuff, but again, it's not, it's not like we don't go there in the, in the story. Um, so it's that this this show decided to like really explore that and i thought it was good yeah good decision. i liked it because like i said i don't know if it's because i it was something fresh and new or if it was just a change in just a bunch of rats in a tunnel but i i liked it for the story and ultimately it all came crashing down around him and it was pretty horrifying when rats were crawling out of his body at the end yeah, yeah. so we end in a very similar place he gets trapped inside a coffin and it's one of his worst fears which has been set up by his nightmares and uh yeah then the the rats all start swarming in and then we get an extra moment at uh, at the very end where we see the grave robbers return, open it up and his body is inside, starts moving and like warping in some ways. And we realize something's inside of him and then all these rats start pouring out of his mouth. And again, it's like very over the top and unrealistic, but it's so campy like I'm in. So I think this episode and I know we're like, I think I just hit my timer. I think it's going to come down to like how you feel about super campy stuff, because especially campy horror. Because I'm I'm like usually kind of mixed on that. Like I, I can I can appreciate it okay, but it's not going to be my favorite. And that's kind of how I feel about this episode. Like it was fun. We I had a good time with it. But ultimately, like I like stories that are a little more serious and feel like they have something more to say than like a very broad like greed is bad kind of message, which is kind of what we're getting here. Yeah, I appreciate it for what it is. Again, it's not my favorite. Yeah, but you know, I I, I was reading this thing actually the other day about uh. This idea of elevated horror and how it's kind of like detrimental to all horror yeah. because it, it's kind of elitist in a way. And I think that like stories like this are awesome. I agree. I don't like I don't like that term. Um, and that's not what I'm trying to say. Right. Like, right, right. I, yeah, no, no, I just I, I didn't think you were. I was just bringing it up because I just read something about it. So this I, I, I'm realizing that, like, there's a place for all of it. And right. this one wasn't necessarily my favorite, but it, it was enough for me to have enjoyed watching it. This one felt like a thrill ride. I do want to mention, too. I watched this one with my girlfriend and she uh, was not interested in it. She yeah. did not like it. And uh, so I kind of got that perspective as well from somebody who was like, this is not for me. And so we skip, we jumped to the outside as our second episode because I felt that she might enjoy that one a bit more. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But our next episode is actually going to be episode three yeah. uh, in, in the Netflix series in terms of release, which was the autopsy. Right. All right. Let's start our timer. Sheriff Nate Craven asks friend Dr. Carl Winters to perform autopsies on several miners who recently died when one of them, Joe Allen, caused an explosion while carrying a mysterious object. Winters has terminal cancer, but agrees. As he records his autopsies, Allen's body reanimates, revealing that it is inhabited by an alien parasite. Allen encounters the parasite and unsuccessfully attempts to destroy it. 
It explains that its species have no sensory organs and use their host for pleasure and nourishment. It revels in stimulating its host's senses to extremes and relishes keeping the host conscious but helpless as it consumes them from within. Sensing Winter's cancer, it subdues him and plans to parasitize him, using his cancer as a replenishing food source. It cuts itself out of Alan's body and temporarily, senseless, begins burrowing into Winter's body. Winters grabs the scalpel from the dying Alan, he gouges out his eyes, punctures his eardrums, and writes a message on his chest and blood before cutting his throat. Inside their shared mind, Winter reveals to the parasite that he has trapped it in his now disabled dying body. The message on his chest instructs Craven to listen to his recordings, which has captured the entire conversation, and to burn his body in the parasite trapped within. Director of this one, his name is David Pryor. David Pryor is an American film director, screenwriter, producer, and editor best known for his work on The Empty Man and Voyeur. After directing documentaries of various David Fincher films for over 10 years, Pryor helmed his first independent short film, AM 1200, in 2008. In February 2016, he was hired to write and direct his feature film debut, the supernatural horror film The Empty Man, based on the graphic novel of the same name from Boom Studios. In December of 2021, he directed, co-created, and executive produced Fincher's Netflix series, Voyeur. Hmm. I don't know anything about Voyeur, and that's a Fincher thing? I haven't even heard of that. So I've heard of it. I don't know a lot about it, but um, from what I'm seeing, it's a series of video essays about cinema. Okay. That's cool. So so this guy doesn't have the same sort of uh, background that our previous director had. It seems like not as well established. He's done some stuff, don't get me wrong, but like as far as like feature films and stuff, is not as many... Not as well known. To specifically to be making documentaries uh, about Fincher films. Too, yeah. though, like you're, you're kind of making a documentary about a master filmmaker, which, yeah. you know, that'll help you any filmmaker, honestly. Right. And I thought this was a well done um, adaptation. I, this was my favorite story. Uh, we talked about uh, what our favorites were in our last episode. I really, really liked The Autopsy by Michael Shea. Uh, or Shea. I'm still not sure how you say the name. I haven't heard anyone say it. <laughs> um but, you know, I thought it was a great story, and um, I even reached out th- on Twitter to Mike Arnzen, former guest, because I was like, I bet this is a story he knows about and likes. Sure enough, he says that it's like a story that he teaches in all like in his classes every year. So um, I was right on with that. And, yeah, that you know, the sci-fi element, you got the body horror, it reminds me of The Thing, um, all that. And then you bring it in, and I was, like, really interested to see what an adaptation of this thing would look like. Um, and I was happy to see it done well. I, I thought this was a very good episode. Um, you know, a lot of fun with it and uh, really gross as hell, uh, just like the story is. Um, but, you know, seeing it is, is really something. Seeing these autopsies, um, the sound of the frickin' scissors or clippers going through the rib cage. Yeah. That's going to stick with me for a while. <laughs> it was real gross. <laughs> it is. It is. Um this is, I think this is my favorite of the three that we watched um, so far. And most of it has to do with, it, it's sort of a larger scale story. The other two feel a little smaller in terms of scope, just because they're more, um, it's just more about like sort of one person and one sort of event going on. Whereas this is kind of sprawling through the city. We get some of the, you know, we get that backstory of these two deputized hunters that, that kind of disappear. It's told in a, a non-sequential way yeah. which is always kind of fun we got some good characters too right like we got um we got winters i think uh it, it really shines through is this like guy who doesn't give a fuck anymore and um he's not like someone who's gonna be like freaked out by a lot which is definitely the attitude i got from him in the story too 
So you believe it when like he's clearly scared, but not like out of his mind scared. Yeah. Um. By by the body sort of animating when it does. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's such an interesting uh character. He's sort of a man out of time too, though, right? Like, so he's got that. He and I think it plays it up a little more to to make you feel like, well, he's doing what he can with his time left, but ultimately, like, you know, I don't know that he fears death. It's clear to that he's kind of come to grips. Well, with Well, he have a conver- he has a conversation with the sheriff in the car, and where he says, uh, you know, we're all on the same conveyor belt. And yep. he's like, some of us just get off early and, or something like that. And like, he's, yeah, he has come to uh, some sort of understanding and like uh, peace, I guess, with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is cool. And that empowers him, I think, to do everything that he does in this episode. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to shout out F. Murray Abraham, the the lead. He's excellent. And I think standout in the show so far for me up there. Or yeah, he and one other person I'll talk about in a little bit. And if you've seen... Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet, which is Rob McElhenney's other show besides Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He plays a character that's sort of a sci-fi writer that you would absolutely get a huge kick out of. Yeah, I feel like I've seen him in some comedic stuff. Like I, he has such a familiar face and I wasn't sure what it was what what I know him from, but he feels like he's got a face for horror and also like he could be really funny in in something. So, he honestly, I think I've seen him in both both arenas, you know, like sort of drama or uh, or comedy and and yeah overall I just think he's great he's really good in this he brings a certain level of you know like I said like you're dealing with a dying man who's dealing with some really serious topics and issues and and I think he brought a lot to the role so this director uh, prior you're talking about he's clearly kind of a student of Fincher it seems like he appreciates his work and and Fincher as a, a filmmaker I have a lot of respect for and I see that coming across in this adaptation like he's got these like I just knew, right? Because there's a line in the story where he talks about the 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 stars are like cobblestones, and when it opened on the sky and it was like all these stars, I was like, this is going to transition into something. And I thought it was going to transition into cobblestones, and instead it transitions into like stones inside the inside the mine. But I thought that was really cool. Like like you're using the like a a, a metaphor from the text and you're bringing it onto the screen with a transition thought that was really clever and then i noticed there was a couple of motifs that kept coming back um the spider like multiple times we focused on a spider and the web and i thought the spider um as much as our our creature looks more like a like octopusy like uh kind of thing octopusy. i don't know i don't know if you can say that <laughs> hey that's the name of a bond movie i think it's a movie yeah yeah it's a character uh yeah um it looked very lovecraftian right like had all these tentacles and uh, yeah anyway um (laughs) um but i think it was being compared to a spider in and sort of the visual language of the episode right and the idea of like a web uh, i think to catch prey in and you know spiders kind of eat people in the way that that this thing does um so that was cool and i like that we kept coming back to it um, so there's a lot of like I, I kind of look at that stuff as like that slightly next level storytelling when you know that not only is the director giving you the story and giving it to you well, but they are playing with motifs and recurring images and themes and stuff like that. That's all operating on like the next level. And that's true mm-hmm. in storytelling in general. Like I think authors, really good authors do that as well. Um, so it's always cool to see directors doing something like that. 
I totally agree. Yeah, the spider represents for sure that that idea of a predator. And and rather than being like a wolf that actively attacks its prey, it springs a trap. It traps, yeah. And then it, it while you're vulnerable. And it paralyzes you. Yeah, while you're vulnerable, it takes you down. Yeah. So. And the little filaments like reminded me of the little like strands and tentacle things that it can shoot out. So there's something with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and something small being dangerous too, right? Like as a human, like, you know, spiders can be dangerous to us, even though they are quite small. I wanted to see a little bit more of him, you know, the moment where he sees his reflection and he's like, run. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that that didn't return. Mm -hmm. Like it, it feels almost like a unfinished thread that came from the story, but then we didn't explore it anymore. Yeah. I would have just liked one or two more moments of it maybe previous to that also. Just yeah. catching a glimpse of himself. Ha yeah, having him talk to his cancer like he did in the story. Um, mm -hmm. Certain things to make that work. Because otherwise, it's just a strange moment that kind of comes out of nowhere and then doesn't really return. So, yeah, I agree. That was that was an interesting part. But, yeah, uh, this, this warehouse turned freezer, you know, he's there alone at night doing these autopsies. Um that is all right out of the story, and I thought it worked really, really well there. Works great here. Super creepy. Um, love that setup. And then, yeah, he's just like, he's not scared of these bodies and stuff, so he's he's doing these autopsies, but then you get the one of the biggest changes, which is him doing these tapes that are for the sheriff. And I thought that was a, another great way, like we've talked about, of like having a character be by themselves and yet talking to somebody. So you can have all the isolation of being alone, but also have a reason for them to be speaking aloud their thoughts. It works great. And and the visual, something very visual about analog technology, I think like we love as viewers too. We saw we saw a portrait of Bill Clinton on the wall in the in the sheriff's office and that, that like told me like when we were, like I feel like this is like early 90s or something. I don't know exactly when. I don't know my exact time period, but um, it, it gave me a, a general sense of what time period we were in, which told me there's no cell phones. I think importantly, like there's certain technology, technological limitations that the characters have um, that, you know, if it was happening today would probably be a little different. You mentioned the nonlinear structure of the story. I, I appreciated it for the for the way that we got the sort of minor running into down and seeing the bomb go off. We saw it a couple of different ways. Yeah. We saw it through from the police's perspective. We saw it through omnipotent camera angle, I guess, mm. where it's sort of just there. Yeah. And uh, we're seeing it from ne not necessarily anyone's perspective. And then we kind of get a little bit of the perspective of the creature. Speaking of, like, it reminds me there's like a magic camera moment where um, they are going to uh, investigate the hotel room. And they like knock on the door. He's not there. They open it up and the camera passes through the wall. And But it doesn't do it in like a CGI way. It does it in a way that is because it's a set and that wall is, is cut. And it passes along that and it kind of shows that. And like, I wanted to ask you what. That's like a, that's a Fincher thing for sure, by the way. Yeah, I was going to ask you like, what what is, what are those moments? Because you get them every now and then in shows. Fincher likes to do it. To me, it like tells me. The camera's kind of magical, one, but also like a moment of I am watching a movie. Like it makes me aware of that. Because there a name for that technique or like if there is a name, I don't know. It's probably something that somebody's coined at some point. But but to me, it, it you know, it's representing a couple of things. Like it's it's that stylistic flair for one. It and then it's it's giving you it's the trapeze artist up doing a flip 
while on the tightrope or whatever, right? So it's like telling you a story and doing it in, in a visual medium and doing something impressive with it, something you haven't seen before. And something that sometimes, like you said, sort of breaks a wall where you're like, well, this isn't possible. But through the perspective of the camera, it is. And, and yeah, I mean, I appreciate it. And it's a bold move, right? Because like you said, it can be jarring. It could almost take someone out of it. But in these ways, usually it's it's a just a really cool way of sort of overcoming a problem and making it part of the story. You know, I wonder if it has a history with um, like police procedurals or something, because um, it was reminding me of like the movie Seven. I bet I bet Fincher does it there. Like it was reminding me of police procedurals. And much, sure enough, we're having some police investigating a, like, you know, a hotel room. So I wonder if there's something genre specific there that that it evokes. I don't know. I mean, noir. We yeah. thousand, it feels like a thousand years ago. We talked about Touch of Evil on another pod- podcast. Yeah, and that's like you know we talked about that the opening shot of Touch of Evil where we come down and that super creative shot that Orson Welles employs and and it's just pushing forward the medium I think and and how genre can do that and noir you know horror owes it a lot to noir and noir in general is just like really seeped into a lot of police procedural and and it tends to be that kind of thing as well so yeah you're probably onto something there it's something about pushing the medium forward and and creating something that's visually and sort of mentally interesting in terms of like challenging you and taking you on a journey. Totally agree. Uh, let's move to back to the to the autopsy scenes. Um, one of my favorite moments was when he looks in and sees uh, what's his name, Joe Allen. He's standing among all the bodies, and there's all these little lines coming out, and then he come back into him, and he says something about being old blood or stale blood. But that moment, it gave me such thing vibes. Like I was thinking of the thing a lot, and I don't know if it was like a direct reference to, but it reminded me of like the poster mm-hmm. of the hooded figure with all the stuff coming coming out because we're kind of seeing this like black profile very cool just horror moment um and we're seeing the power of this thing um and then yeah it the way it gets him on the table and he, we've seen him chop apart all these bodies and now it's happening to him i like the way that they represented um the last moments of joe allen i think his name is in in that like last sort of jerk motion that he does to get the scalpel closer. Yeah, it wasn't as clear to me that Joe Allen had like a moment of fuck you thing. Like, I, and it would have been hard for them to really convey that, I guess. Um, but that was a thing in the story that I really appreciated. And there was a horrific idea there of being like momentarily alive in a dead body. Well, he he has that tear fall as well, right? He's yes, like- and so I think that's that's what that's saying. Um, I just think it might be easy to miss for viewers. Um, whereas the, the story does a really good job of like highlighting that. But honestly, I, you know, talking about high level of filmmaking and everything, I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing. If, if people miss it, they might miss it. And if you, but if you pick up on it, there's something to, to dig into there. Maybe, you know, a little, something a little ambiguous. Very cool. Um, and then he does do this thing where he's like, you've missed something. And he's like, what? There's nothing I could have missed. And I like how it was really arrogant. And he's like, um, playing with him there and then um sure enough the thing that he missed is that the tape is running still and um so the tape part of it comes back and uh because of that it changes the message he leaves um but we'll let's save that to the very end but um then he does the vandalism <laughs> which we got to talk about the vandalizing of the own body and i noticed there was, i think the biggest change is he's not numb here so in the um, in the story now at least my memory of it is that he he didn't fe- he couldn't feel anything and so as he was like cutting his own, you know, arteries and like stabbing himself, like I didn't think he was feeling pain. 
I thought the horror was more about the idea of doing that to yourself and knowing it's permanent and like that kind of stuff. Um, whereas here, like he can feel all of it. He's like crying out in pain as he does it, which is pretty horrific. And, and it just adds to the sense of like, oh, fuck. Yeah. The angle that they chose for the stabbing of the eyes. So he's like sort of behind and comes <laughs> Scalpel down right into, into the eye. Little... Not a good episode for a squeamish person to watch, I would say. Right. The creature doesn't really wax philosophically as it does in the story as much. It, it does a little, but the, there's a lot that goes into his explanation of the universe and the way that it's tied into the systemic, the way that human, like any body, any living body is sort of run by certain systems. And I, I thought that was a really cool part that I, I understand why it wasn't really possible to include all of that. But that was something that was missing from this. That I, I, liked what, I liked what we did get, though. Like it touched on some similar stuff. But I mean, like ultimately the story... This is one where I actually felt like it was condensed a little bit. So, I, yeah, I appreciated that. And, like, I think we got enough of that from him, from the alien to to sort of follow along and know what's going on and, and know that it's arrogant without overstaying its welcome. Oh, looks like we're, we're out of time. Um, well, just very quickly, they change. He changes the words he writes on himself. Um, and instead of alien inside cut or something like that, which is in the story, it's um, play tape burn me um and i was like i was kind of surprised i saw that change but it makes sense and and we it highlights the tape which has the story in it if you listen to it you hear everything that was being said and we get that final moment uh where we're going to actually end on the reveal of the sheriff coming in finding his friend on the ground in a really fucked up scene (laughs) Uh, as far as like what's happening in this place when he shows up and then uh he looks over at the tape which is like spinning i think um, and I believe that's the final shot. That's the end of the episode. Yep. Actually, the it cuts to like a lake scene and then uh, it starts to play the tape. So we hear the beginning of him sort of starting it out, which I thought was a great way to end the episode. Yeah. Very cool. I thought this was a great adaptation. You know, I, I think uh, the story I really, really liked and I was happy to see a really well executed adaptation. Uh, yeah. Very fond of this one. Uh, favorite episode, I think, like I said, of the three that we've watched so far. I'd be excited to see some more. Really good. But episode four is called The Outside. I'm going to start my timer. Stacy, a seemingly unattractive and awkward woman, longs to be beautiful like the woman of her workplace. After being invited to her co-worker's Christmas party, Stacy is given a popular lotion called Aloe Glow, while her taxidermy secret Santa gift is poorly received. Despondent, she tries the lotion but finds that it gives her a rash. At home, her husband tries to reassure her that she is perfect just the way she is, to no avail as she expresses the loneliness she feels from being excluded. After mysteriously being contacted by the creator of the lotion through her TV, she agrees to buy more aloe glow, but her rash persists. The lotion leaks from the bottles, forming a humanoid that Stacy embraces before it discorporates into her bathtub. When her husband tries to shake her from her obsession, she murders him. While climbing into the lotion bath, she emerges finally beautiful. She taxidermies her husband and arrives to work, stunning her co-workers who invite her to join them. Having finally lost herself, Stacy revels in her co-workers' attention and new shallow social status. And uh, I've actually have experience with this filmmaker in the past. She, uh, Speaking of people studying things, I studied this film in school, in, uh, in film school. So Anna Lily Amarpour is a British-born American film director, screenwriter, producer, and actress. She's best known for her feature film debut, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, oh. which is the film that I was referencing. I've heard that. I've heard of that film. Incredible film. Self-described as, quote, the first Iranian vampire spaghetti western. 
with elements of film noir and the restraint of Iranian new wave cinema. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I highly recommend it if you're a horror fan and just in general, it's awesome. It's super cool. So that film made its debut at Sundance Film Festival in 2014 and was based on a previous short film that she wrote and directed, which won Best Short Film at the 2012 Noor Iranian Film Festival. Nice. So this was my favorite of the three. I was holding off to say, just mm-hmm. edging out the autopsy, honestly. I like the autopsy a lot, but... Um, I really liked this episode. Um, I, I ended up like looking at the IMDb scores for some of the episodes when I was trying to look up cast just before we started recording. And I saw that this one had the lowest rating of the three we watched. And I was wow. like, fuck, no. <laughs> like, I don't, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things, man. It's like you can't trust people sometimes. I think that the subject material might have something to do with an IMDb user score. Yeah. And then also like there are some people out there who are just known for being real shitty about like anything that's directed by a woman or whatever. And like, you know, like, Oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say this is the worst episode. Um, I thought this was great. You know, I, I I really like this. It felt really different than the other stories, which is is a bonus to me. Um, I thought it was incredibly well-made. I liked the sort of like Christmassy vibe, but distorted. We have these like, Christmas songs being sung, but they're being sung in like a creepy way, <laughs> like almost like slowed down and like brought to a minor key. <laughs> I think um, like Ode to Joy, I think is the first song playing, but it's like really ominous. Um, and again, we get this cool like sweeping shot of the, the camera coming in and then it travels through the glass and enters the house. And we meet Stacy, who's being played by uh, Kate McCucci, who. I am a big fan of because she's one half of Garfunkel and Oates, which yep. is this musical uh, duo. And that's what I know her from. I, you know, I've seen her in some stuff, but like I know her from that musical duo and like they're so funny. Like, I, you know, so funny. a lot of good stuff there. So if you haven't heard any of that, check it out. Um, and then like I barely recognized her as Stacy. She, she looked familiar, but it wasn't until I looked her up and you know saw her at the end where I was like, oh, I think I do know who this is. And um, sure enough, you know. And it's such a such a just cool story about this woman who wants to fit in and wants to be beautiful and to be different than she is. And there's so many little things that make it surprising and interesting to me. Um, yeah, I'm just what would what did you think of it, man? Yeah, uh, I love this episode. I this was the one, like I said, we jumped to because I felt that the autopsy might not be yeah. um, my partner's speed, so we went to this one. And I think she was interested, and in I think she enjoyed it more. Um, still, definitely some moments of like, God, this is rough to watch it's gross. and that kind of stuff. Some Obviously, real gross, parts. A lot of grossness, yeah. and some some stuff that they're leaning into. But Kate Mikuchi is the other uh, standout that I wanted to shout yeah. out because she absolutely kills this role. I mean, just the way that she's able to manipulate her face and her and her body and her mannerisms and the and what she was able to do with this character and and the the, the weird places that it goes and it was just awesome. It was such a cool role. Very yeah. cool. Um, these women are awful. <laughs> yet you can kind of see why she looks up to them in some ways even though she like you just want to like scream at her that she shouldn't that these people are terrible and you shouldn't want to be like them um because we just see them being awful over and over again and shallow and just just some of the worst people you'll ever meet it seems like to me um and then her husband keith i i love this character because he is so unusual in stories like this where you think the 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 husband is going to be part of the problem and be like, you know, like spearheading the pressure on her to look better and stuff. And like, 
No, he's super supportive. He, like he's a great partner. He he is like often the voice of reason for her. Um, I loved when she called him at the start. Um, and and she says like just say the thing, and he's like, you know, it's an old house. It makes noises, and like so it's like clearly this has happened multiple times. He's very patient. Um, and he loves her and like, he likes her for what she is and for what she, you know, he, he says like, I love you on the inside and out, or you're, you're beautiful on the inside and out. And, um, it's so tragic when she just like hyper fixates on like you, even, the only reason you even said in, you know, outside is because I'm not. And like, it's so sad the way she fixates on it and the way she fixates on these women. Um, but believable. I don't know. It's such a, such a, such a cool story because of that. Like I, I, I identify with it and I, I understand it even as I see this character like ruining her own life, I guess. Clearly an extreme example, I would I say. I mean, it's a horror story. Of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's this, it's the really emphasized version of, of someone dealing with stuff like this, but people do deal with stuff like this. You know, I think everyone does. And especially like wanting to feel included and wanting to feel liked and things like that. Other things that are wrapped up in what she's seeing is being wrapped up in beauty. And then the way that there's predatory marketing natures of, of some absolutely. Of these I was going to say like society and like these infomercials that keep coming on over and over again. And like, yeah, we get the one about Alago, but we're getting all these other ones too. Um, and it's like, uh, it's showing the pressure that is out there and what she's been seeing that is like seeping into her mind. And then that's turned into a monster in and of itself as we get, the hallucinations, if you want to call them that, uh, uh, where the TV's talking to her. And once again, I think you could actually view this entire episode as a hallucination, and then maybe none of this really, even really happens, and she just kills her husband. <laughs> but, um, you know, if, if we take it for what we saw, then it's like, yeah, that, that TV is almost possessed, and maybe there's some sort of uh, eldritch power behind it. I don't know. And is that the character from Legion? Is that that guy? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's Dan Stevens. Yeah. He looks so familiar. And I was like, I think this is Legion. Uh, the accent that he was putting on was hilarious. Yeah, it was really, I was could like not figure weird, it out. It was like clearly an American trying to do this weird British accent. And then some of the words he was saying incorrectly. Like, I kept expecting him to say like a word a certain way. And then he like never would. He would do something completely different. <laughs> yeah. which And he's like it's so phony. It's building up that whole phony yeah. sort of persona that he's putting on and everything, which I thought was great. And also you talked about the husband. Martin Starr's incredible. I thought he was really good. Really likable as usual. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of his characters and yeah I, I guess I don't know him what what else has he been in he, he's been in so much but but I think he one of the most famous things is he started in um, Freaks and Geeks I haven't seen that okay Judd Apatow um, de- like developed that and it was a huge uh, one of the one of the bigger shows that was like canceled before its mm-hmm. time and there was a lot of people who felt that it was like canceled too early okay. but then yeah he was in he was a uh, Guilfoyle in Silicon Valley if you've ever seen that, seen that where he's like He's pretty nuts in that one. He's been in Marvel movies recently. He's the teacher in the Spider-Man movies. He takes them on their trips and okay. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he's he's great. I've always liked him. Yeah. And to see him here is, is really I thought fun. it was cool to see this character, honestly, from this, like, obviously woman-led episode um, and have him be actually a voice of reason. Because when she kills him, it's such a, like, shocking, tragic moment. And I just love the way that played out. Uh, she stabs him in the forehead with the scalpel and he's just like, oh, geez. Oh, geez. You stabbed me in the face, you know, <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> and he sits down and he's like, do I take it out or leave it in? It's like, very like Fargo, right? Yeah, very Fargo. Like and he's so and he's also just like so nice that like even in this moment, 
Like this is as far as he'll go. It's just like an oh geez kind of moment, you know. Yeah. And then I, sh- I guess I should get on the radio. Yeah. And then the saddest part, I honestly like the the line that killed me was when he said something fell on me, Stace, after he gets hit with the axe. You didn't think she'd be capable? No, of he had no. He thought yeah. something fell on him. Like it's so sad, and I'm like, that that is heartbreaking and um, right. powerful, honestly, and it really shows her transformation into this monster. Yeah, a couple of things that I wanted to know is this. I think that this is a great inversion of sort of stories that we get often, right? So there will be like a husband who's spiraling and he's like going down a dark path, and then the wife is the voice of reason, yeah. and she ends up a casualty often and in certain stories like this and to see I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about like women need to be vo- villains you know what i mean it's it's a good thing to have these like people think maybe there's something wrong about women being villains but absolutely not like they they are should be in every yeah. role you know it's well we talked about this with um gillian flynn right like that's one of the themes of her work is is showing women in all sorts of different roles and including villainous um and yeah i agree i think it's you know I think it's powerful to see. And like, you know, there are some <laughs> villainous women out there today that we see. Um, and I think it's good to like understand that like they are like women are completely capable of being hor- horrible people too. historically. Yeah. Guys take the cake. And I think we've, we've, we've uh, really dominated the marketplace as far as like being shitheads. Um, but there's a lot of horrible women out there too. <laughs> yeah, there, there definitely yeah, is. Think about that woman over in, uh, I mean, this is, you know, bringing in a little true crime here so sorry but uh that woman over in england who got caught for like killing multiple babies this nurse i don't know if you've heard about that um no i don't think I yeah have. she just like literally killed a bunch of babies and she's you know out of her mind and you know they found all these like notes she had written where she was talking about how like you know i'm killing them i'm so terrible why am i doing this and then like she was like, um, it's really dark. She she like befriended the families and would like comfort them and stuff, even as she was killing their babies. It's really, it's really brutal. And like, so like the idea yeah. that like it's impossible for them to be villains, like right. I think that's not good. Um, just yeah, and, I thought you when know. you were gonna mention villains, I thought you were gonna mention Marjorie Taylor Greene. But oh man, there's a lot of villains in politics. <laughs> that's for damn sure. <laughs> But yeah, man, uh, this story, you know, you know, at this point where she, like, this character's so interesting too, right? Like, she, she has this taxidermy thing that she's really interested in, and like, it's, it is creepy and weird, but like, I love that her husband is supportive of it, and he calls her an artist, and we see her take the flesh out of that duck, and and do the her thing, and like, that was such a gross moment, and I remember thinking like, oh, this is so perfect, such a perfect metaphor for what's going on, right? We're seeing, it references that uh, some other animals meet, which is the name of the actual story that this is based on, um, and so I was like, I was like, oh, I love how they're talking about that, like, in, ex, interior versus exterior, it keeps coming back, and, um, we're, you know, we're dealing with that there, and then, like, when she brought that as the gift... I was like, oh, like I, I called. I was like, she's bringing that fucking duck as as the gift, and like you just knew it was gonna go over so poorly. <laughs> and and it, it, they make you feel bad too. Like as as I don't really know how I feel about taxidermy am, animals in general, sure. especially for for the sport it's of weird. it. Like she just goes out and kills it, and taxidermy yeah. the animal. Um, it, and then they make you feel bad about it, though, right? Like she gives it as a gift. She works really hard on it. You can tell she's very good at her craft at the thing that she's doing. Like you said, and and like you know when she gives it, you're like, fuck. Can you guys just appreciate yeah. like the effort that it took someone? To I mean, do she something? is weird about it. <laughs> she's yeah. like, she says, uh, "Oh, you know, all the flesh is out of there. I pulled it all out." And then she's like, "She goes, you can love it forever." <laughs> you know, like I was like, right. "Okay," <laughs> like I'd be weirded out by that gift too. But like, you know, I, it, it's so interesting. Like I actually love the way that was shot. That whole 
scene at Gina's house. And, and honestly, repeatedly with the women, you get these like close ups and like, I don't know if there was actual fisheye lens going on, but at times it almost felt like it was distorting. For sure. There definitely was. It was wide, super wide angle, probably like a 12 millimeter lens. Okay. It's like it creates a fisheye effect when it's that wide. Yeah. Because we were getting such close ups of their faces and like the way they were all like catty with each other and like they formed this little circle and I thought it was so clever that they formed this circle and yet she's like on the outside of it looking in. And we, our eyes are drawn to her because that's our main character. She's in the background and she's like trying to peek in and like listen to what's being said. And like she's obviously trying to like nod along and act like she gets it. But she's also very clearly excluded and, you know, beneath the attention of these women. Um, so I, I felt like that was all so good and like sets up what we get at the end. Um, Did you think that it was weird that her first instinct when she met this goo monster was to make out with it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um so she goes through like a psychological journey with this, right? Like she, she, at first she's like, oh, this is so bizarre. I can't be talking to the TV. This isn't real. Um, but then she starts to like come on board and he keeps telling her the things she wants to hear. The idea of like it itches because it works, you know, it hurts because it works. That's how you know it's working. Like that keeps coming back over and over again as we see this like honestly pretty horrific body horror as her like flesh is like getting really scaly and like red and gross and she's scratching at it um and it's like the thing she's doing to herself you're just like want to shake her and be like no stop um and then uh yeah i think she just fully buys in and like she's beguiled by it um and then um it reminded me of the scene from annihilation uh, and too. I thought that totally. was really cool. Yeah. Like they mirror each other and that figure was taller than her and shapelier than her. And I think it was like, she could tell that that was her idealized self and it was coming out of this aloe glow. And I think that's why there was this like attraction to it. Like she really wanted that. And I think she at on some level understood this is the version of me that I want to attain by, by using this aloe glow. So at that point, I think she was just fully gone um, which sets up her murdering her husband later, which is like clearly a sign of her being fully gone. Um, and, and God, it, once again, fantastic. One of my favorite death scenes I've seen in a long time is how that played out. It was so good. <laughs> really good. Uh, and so sad, like honestly sad. It is very sad. And it's because I think it's on Martin Starr's portrayal of the character yeah. too, because he's such a likable character. Um, well, and the writing and directing, everything leans into that. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And then she goes and gets, she gets in the tub and she sees the figure. And like, first off, I think the special effects on this goo monster were great. Like, it looks so yeah. good. And like, I think at times it was probably a person, like, obviously, like wearing mocap or something, or like maybe even have something on that they're then adding some oozing effects to. I think it was definitely a real person there. And then they were maybe CG on the face. Yeah, you're getting these great, because you're getting great lighting. Like, it looks like it's in the scene. Um, and I remember, I think in our episode uh, last week, I, I mentioned the, the blob. And I was thinking about the blob and, like, the goo. And I, I kept expecting it to actually be, like, a goo monster that was going to drop on somebody or something. But instead, it goes this, like, doppelganger route, which I thought was rad. Um, and then, yeah, the, the scene where she gets in the bathtub with it, and it, it sort of swallows her up. Um, really interesting and like I felt like it was almost orgasmic for her as it was happening for sure I thought um, the same thing you yeah. know so like it really shows that like s like sex is so built into this like if w these women are constantly talking about like the size of their husband's dicks so they're like oh you know right. and, like and their ED they're having and like all this stuff right 
And um, not, not only, it also shows like the disdain they have for the people who they supposedly love in their lives. Like one of their, another reason. They're all talking about getting divorced, when I get divorced. And yeah. They're all so shallow and awful. What did you make of the final scene where she's in the she's in there and she's laughing for like 30 I seconds? I wanted to talk about this scene so much. I loved it. Okay, so so she, she goes into work and she has her pretty woman moment, right? Her husband's taxidermied at home sitting on the couch. <laughs> and she's throwing out organs in the trash. She goes in and she's looking all great. Everybody's so impressed with her and she becomes welcomed into the circle like for the once she's a part of the circle right like the camera has welcomed her in it's referencing the previous scene where she was excluded and instead now she's at the center of it and then all of a sudden she starts to like levitate and this glow comes behind her head and she's laughing and then she like looks down the barrel of the camera at us the viewers is what i felt and then she's just laughing but like the laugh is so unsettling comes and goes she looks away and looks back and I thought, like, I don't know, how how do you direct this moment? How do you tell an actor what you want from this moment? It's so unhinged and weird. And, um, I you know, big shout out to, to Kate Micucci for, like, nailing this. And I think it is a moment that is just very strange. And, like, I want to see stuff that I, I'm not used to, right? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. And to me, it directly engaged with me, the viewer, like, challenging me um, to be, like, how do I feel about this? And I think challenging women who might watch it to be like, is this what you want? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is it, are, are we feeling good about this now that you've attained this? I don't know. It's I, it, I feel like you could write a whole essay about what this even means at the end, but it's it's it clearly means a lot. And that pulsing light behind her, um, it's almost hypnotic. And it felt like it was like hypnotizing me as a viewer. Um, I just this just made me really happy like I walked away from this one going like yeah this is my favorite of the three which I didn't think because I watched the autopsy first like because I watched them in order I thought the autopsy was gonna be my favorite because I thought it was really really good but then I saw this and I was like nope this isn't my favorite I really like this <laughs> all right well our our timer has gone off but I'll quickly wrap up here with my thoughts on it um for one it's like you said I think it's that reflection period where we get a chance to reflect I also think it's a an awesome minute for Kate Micucci to sort of flex her her like manipulation of her body like I was talking about like she sort of cycles between this like laughing into sort of the squinting face that she had been doing uh and as the other sort of version of her character and yeah this light it's like she it's ethereal like she's attained something like beyond her wildest dreams and all these other things and she's living in the background's moment. playing that that song about like uh a miracle like something being a miracle and beauty i can't remember what song it is i believe in miracles that one yeah you but it's like slowed down and weird again very weird yeah yeah so good I loved it. Yeah, it was overall very cool. And this kind of decision to end a story like this with something really unsettling and also like the introspection, the sort of unhinged nature of this character in both directions. Now she's still that same person. It's and and so like is she she's now in quote in quotes like prettier on the outside, but uglier on the inside and sort of the flip that's happened. Yeah. And we're seeing it in the representation of this final scene. She's become a monster on the inside as she she kills right. her husband. And, I you know. There's, it reminds me of this one moment where I thought it was really as tragic as like everything else that happened. Like this is one of the most tragic moments where Keith tells her, um, he tells her that that you're beautiful on the inside and out, right? And uh, I think you're perfect the way you are. And she says, and that's what's wrong with you. And I thought like that was so sad. It's like she is so certain that she is bad that she then blames Keith for that. The, the fact that he can say or that he thinks she's okay the way she is is now a detriment to him 
and and I think that's why she's like able to kill him essentially because she is at this point he represents not changing and she wants to change so badly. Great episode. Uh, shout out again to Anna Lily yeah. Amarpour. Uh, incredible. And IMDb's ratings are wrong. This is one of the best episodes in the series. So so far that. that we've yeah, seen. So far that we've seen it shouldn't. It's like a 6.2 out of 10. And I'm like, fuck that. That's wrong. Yeah, that's not right. But again, we don't like ratings here anyway. So just personally, I, I really like this one. And, I, and um, I, you know, I, I said, like, I thought this would probably be a, one of the more divisive episodes just because it is going to be. I bet this feels really different than everything else in this in this entire anthology. But just like step back for a moment and like look at how good it is. And like assuming you're not someone who's just being an asshole and being like, oh, it was directed by a woman. It's a, it's a two. Like assuming that you're actually like engaging with it in good faith, like. I think there's a lot to like here, and it, as much as it might not have that Lovecraftian feel that all the others have, you get some of it, and you get this doppelganger scene, which again reminds me of Annihilation. Like, there's a, just a lot to like here. I, we're way over time, so we got to stop. But like, um, you know, this was fun, man. Uh, these episodes, uh, honestly, I thought they were all good, um, good to great, and and honestly, I think this last one was pretty great. So yeah, I'm excited to get into more of it, and I really am interested to see what they brought to the show outside of the short stories that we covered because. We'll be doing that as our bonus episode here coming up. Yeah, for November. But next week, we're coming back with the two Lovecraft stories. I've been hearing some some Lovecraft fan rumblings, so I'll be curious to see what I think of it. As someone who's not a Lovecraft, like I'm not admittedly not like a big Lovecraft person. I'm just I'm going in with it open mind. I want to see how they they tackle these things. And, and are they good episodes? You know, that's almost like a separate thing from like if you want something faithful sometimes. So. Uh, I'm not going to let that I'm not going to let that uh, negativity I've seen out there <laughs> a little bit, I mean, you know, at least mixed reviews I've seen out there. I'm not going to let that affect me. So if you enjoyed this episode uh, of our coverage, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, helps us get the word out, helps us, you know, elevate in the rankings, all that good stuff. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And if you'd like to support this podcast on Patreon, we are patreon.com slash Ink to Film. We'll have bonus episodes on there, like the one we just talked about, which will be coming up in November. In October, we just covered Interview with the Vampire AMC Plus series. We covered the first two episodes on that because we uh, that was a project we did uh, a year or two now uh, ago now. And... Um, it was cool to revisit and talk about this new adaptation and what it's bringing to the table. So if you want to hear that, go over and uh, you can get access to all of our bonus content on there for $2. And thank you to Dylan Owen for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. We will be back next week to finish out this series. Hopefully you're all having as much fun with it as we are. Uh, and until next time, keep adapting. Make sure you apply that owl glow. <laughs> That's how you adapt, I guess.